This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final Inglis auction of the year, the 2019 Ready to Race sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses of two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale, literally ready to race. Each horse will undertake a breeze-up session, which is a gallop ending in a 200-metre sprint. Each breeze-up will be recorded, which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional breeze-up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd, and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English ready-to-race sale catalogue is unparalleled in Australasia. 42-year-old bloodstock agent Suman Hedge vividly recalls the events that sparked his obsession with thoroughbreds. It was Melbourne Cup Day 1986. He was nine years old, going through the field for the Melbourne Cup with his mother Sumati, who enjoyed having a little flutter on the great race each year. At the time, Suman was a fanatical Canterbury Bulldogs supporter and was delighted when he noticed at Talak carried the same blue and white colour combination of his favourite team. He was very excited to see at Talak win that cup and religiously followed the rest of the horse's racing career. It was an innocent beginning to a journey that has taken him into a world he loves. As recently as March of 2018, he opened the doors of his brand new business, Suman Hedge Bloodstock, a venture he launched after a long learning period working for others. Suman Hedge is an interesting man with a fascinating story, and it's my pleasure to welcome him to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Suman. It's a pleasure, John. Great to be here. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. (laughs) In recent times, you've had a presence on the international market, and only last week you were devastated to learn that your prized German import, Django Freeman, had come up with a bone chip in the near knee. Yeah, um, it was obviously a really big blow for us, John. Um, you know, it's a horse that uh, we, we purchased last year in December um, when he was a two-year-old in, in Germany. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd seen the horse race successfully over there, uh, culminating in a second placing in the German Derby. Mm-hmm. And uh, we brought him over to Australia to be trained by Robert Hickmont. And uh, the horse was going really well and, and, and just had a jump out at Caulfield and performed particularly well there and to the point where he was one of the favourites for the Cups. And, yeah, just uh, unfortunately a couple of days later it was a bit scratchy and, they did a scan and it's a bone chip in the knee. So um, he's uh, he's already had it uh, removed and operated on and he'll have three months out and will reset uh, for the winter carnival next year. 
He's a very lightly raced horse. He's only had six starts for three wins and three placings, including that second in the German derby you mentioned. And you and several of his potential Australian owners went to Hamburg to see him run. Yeah, it was it was a really unique deal that we did, John, because um, when we were looking to purchase the horse, the original owners, they loved him so much. And in Germany, the focus is very much on winning the derby. It's the race they all want to win. It's their sort of Melbourne Cup, I guess. And so they were reluctant to sell all of the horse. They wanted us to do a partnership up until the derby. And then after that, we would take over. Um, so we were able to do that engineer the deal and the Australian uh, clients went over to Germany with myself and we had a great week there. We travelled around the country, went to stud farms and saw different training establishments and and then uh, culminated in him running second. So it was a really interesting and enjoyable trip for the group and we all, it galvanised the group and we, we, we've all become, you know, much closer because of it. Last year, you syndicated another German horse for Australian owners. His name is Shabau, who'd had six European starts for a couple of wins. You got him to Australia, spelled him immediately, and then he went to Robert Hickmott at Caulfield. He had three starts at Flemington earlier this year for three wins, including a listed race over 2,600 metres by a big margin and Melbourne Cup was ringing in your brain. <laughs> yeah, yes, most definitely. Um, yeah, Shabao was a horse that we had identified um, probably mid last year, um, and and he had run on the German Derby Day on the undercard, and had won a race by you know six or seven lengths, and he was untouched. So we were able to put together a deal, um, and he was quite an expensive horse for his performance but everyone could see the potential. We brought him out and uh, he kicked off in December and had three starts with Robert, Robert Hickmont at Caulfield and um, won them all. And um, and then unfortunately um, uh, went amiss. So um, it's, uh, yeah, there's there's a few parallels between Shabao and Django Freeman. They're both uh, horses that have shown some potential, but um yeah, unfortunately, we've got to wait till next year to see him race. What was the prognosis for Shabao? His injury was probably uh, more serious in, in, in the nature in that it was a suspensory, but it was a very mild lesion. So, um, look, the prognosis for re- return to racing is excellent, but I think um, he's a big, strong entire. So, um, Often we find with those horses there's, um, you know, recurrences or they, they can often do the other tendon. Mm. So we, we sort of guarded from that point of view, but the, the actual injury itself was fairly minor and we've had him scanned and he's clear at the moment. So um, we'll look to bring him back early in the new year. You grew up in the southwestern Sydney suburb of Macquarie Fields and That's your it. dad was a general practitioner at Campbelltown I can't find a shred of evidence that you ever <laughs> contemplated a career as a doctor. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I think that um, from a very early age, uh, I, I was I had very little interest in ac- academics and um, I most of my interest was in sport and I'd read the newspaper was one of the few things I read and that was backwards and I only, only to about halfway. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I was a bit of a uh, – my, my parents were very concerned, um, 
because all of my uh, family members, the majority of them are, are professionals and um, engineers and doctors and accountants and things like that. So um, when they were looking at my um, uh, prognosis for the future, it, it didn't look too good there for a while. <laughs> but, um, no. uh, you know, but, you know, fortunately, um, uh, I found a passion for, for sport and for racing. Yeah. They were pretty concerned uh, when you were going to the Seventh-day Adventist High School <laughs> at Strathfield yeah. when uh, your marks uh, weren't to the high standard that mum and dad had hoped for. <laughs> I don't think they were to a high standard of anyone. Um, so it's, I, I ended up at that school. We, we're not from that faith, but we um, it was one of the few um, private schools um, semi-private schools in our area so I ended up there yeah. and um, anyway I, I sort of battled my way through um, and then when when uh, I got to year 12 and my HSC results came through it was a, it was a bit of a realization of <laughs> what I what sort of trouble I was in um, <laughs> and uh, that was a bit of a reckoning for me because mum and dad were like you know you need to get your act together so um, from there I um, I did a diploma in um, uh, in commerce, which I graduated from, and and then did a degree in um, a bachelor of business administration, mm. um, and started to get things together a little bit. But I still really didn't have a plan. I think, like a lot of young people, um, you know, I was sort of early to mid twenties, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and the things that I liked, like racing and and sports and those sorts of things just seem so far away. Um, so, yeah, really quite lost at that stage. All through these early years, you had a fetish about <laughs> thoroughbred yearling sale catalogues. You couldn't get enough of them. Yeah, well, that actually stemmed from Atlack. So um, because it was really a lot of um, chance things that happened for me, John, so... Um, I saw an article in the – I remember it very clearly in the Telegraph and it was about a mare called Road Song and she was racing that weekend in foal to Atalak. Mm. So I rang the newspaper and asked them what that was and what it meant and they just said that, look, he was a stallion and he stood at this stud. So I rang Lindsay Park and I spoke to a gentleman by the name of Harry Lyon <laughs> and I pretended I was a breeder. Um, and that I, I had mares and I was looking to send a mare to Atalak. And I'm sure he could tell I was like a kid. Um, but he probably felt, uh, you know, just wanted to encourage me. So he sent a lot of information about the horse, videos and brochures and things like that. And from there, I followed that. Um, and that's sort of like um, then I started to buy racing magazines and read up about those things. And that led me to start attending the sales um, and, and picking up the catalogues and studying pedigrees. Mm. Now, so, is it true that you would later, a little while later, you'd go to a yearling sale, pretend you were a buyer, yeah, and you'd request that a certain cult or filly be brought out of its box so you could <laughs> pretend to inspect it? Yeah, I did. It was, um, it was actually um, – it's a bit embarrassing. I look back at it now, but um, I didn't know anyone. So I'd go to the sales and I could see that um, people were inspecting horses and they were pulling them out and everyone seemed to be really friendly and they would do it. And so I was, um, you know, probably 16, 17 years old. I was still relatively young. Mm. And, yeah, you know, I was pulling out these, getting them to pull out these horses and they were like really well-bred, you know, um, 
and Dane Hills and stuff, and horses that were selling for big money. And I can only, I can only think that they've might have thought, oh, maybe it's one of the Sheikh's nephews, or you know, maybe it's someone who's connected to someone who's got some money. So we'll just be polite to this this guy. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't even know what I was looking at. You know, I had no training, and and I'd never grown up on a farm or anything, or gone to a um, equine college. But it was just wanting to be a part of it and and just being desperate to be a part of the industry and um and and to have some connection so yeah it was i had to catch a couple of buses and trains to get from campbelltown to um to you know newmarket because it wasn't really straightforward and um you know the, the funny thing is is that i had to sort of tell fibs to my parents like they i'd say i was going to you know college or going to study at a library and that and i was I wasn't going off to watch movies or go off with my mates uh, to sort of chase girls. I was going to yearling sales to watch horses. <laughs> Is it any wonder you finished up a bloodstock agent? <laughs> I know. It's um, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's really odd, but um, it it did be it did become a bit of an obsession for me because it was something that I felt that I had uh, an ability to remember. Yeah. information and stuff so i think once you've once you discover that and it does certainly um you know lead to those sort of behaviors <laughs> well a man called sharif iskander was destined to change the course of your life sharif began his business life as an accountant he later became a pioneer in the field of laser eye correction and then he drifted into racing very unobtrusively now, yeah. when you met him, he owned one horse, a cult by Geiger Counter, which had been disappointing. Yeah. And it was your brother who strongly recommended you as a potential bloodstock manager for Sharif Eskander. And it was a, it's a great story uh, that you related to me the other day about your first meeting with the man. Yeah, John, it was, again, it's just such random things that can um, lead you onto your eventual path. And um, I was I was actually studying um, at college at the time and um, my bigger brother was working at a company called AT Carney and it's a management consultancy company. And it's a big company. And um, he his principal was a guy by the name of Joseph Cropaldi. And, and Joseph was an incredibly intelligent uh, and is an incredibly intelligent person, and has, you know, um, done some really big jobs over the over the years. But he's very, very eccentric as well. And he he used to come into the office and complain about this horse that he he'd bought, and he'd just say, "Oh, he's a donkey, and he's slow, and I don't know what's wrong with him, and yeah. all that." And and then my brother just sort of said to him, "Oh, my little brother, you should speak to him. He's a genius." And he's um he's just talked talked me up incredibly like I I had you know nowhere near what he the way he talked me up and he and and he sort of made me out to be some sort of um you know prophet mm. and uh, he's like oh organize a meeting so um uh, my brother said right oh next uh, Monday you've got to meet with my boss and mm. you better leave a good impression because I've talked you up yeah so I've um gone to uh, my mum and I said mum. I need to get a suit because I didn't even own a suit at the time. And um, she's like taking me to Lowe's, which was like the local. Um, there wasn't, there weren't many choices at where we lived. So <laughs> gone out there and bought something off the rack and um, ill-fitting thing. And anyway, um, 
I've, I've turned up on the Monday and at the office and the office is like pretty plush and mm. there's all these like secret doors and things. And I was like, where am I? It's like James Bond. Mm. And then this eccentric Italian uh, bloke sort of says hello to me and he says, ah, uh, you're, you're Prasad's brother. Um, uh, the genius. Okay, we'll go for lunch now. <laughs> and then I was like a bit nervous. And then I thought he's probably going to take me to one of these flash restaurants, um, you know, big five-star things, you know, being mm. being such a big sort of, um, you know, manager and everything. And mm. anyways, walked me down to the Wynyard McDonald's. <laughs> and um, it's it's not even a proper McDonald's. It's like a kiosk, <laughs> you know. So uh, And then, like, to add insult to injury, he just said, sit down. So I've, like, sat down. He's ordered for me like we're on a date. And he orders his favourite, um, two cheeseburgers, a small chips and a Coke, and that's what he always eats. <laughs> and so he ordered the same for me. And then he says, all right, um, my horse is no good. Tell me why. Mm. And I've said, um, I, I knew a little bit about this horse. It was by Geiger Counter. It was called Atomic Beach. It was with Anthony Cummings and had three mm. starts and it was unplaced. Mm. And I said, look, um, just from what I can see, the horse is probably not genuine. And uh, you'd probably be wise to, to geld it. And then he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, geld it, you know, castrate it. He's like, oh, no, 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 we'll not be doing that. And then I said, well, why not? And he said, uh, if you do that, this horse is going to be so embarrassed in front of its friends <laughs> and these other horses, it won't be able to run at all. Oh, goodness. And then I, at that moment, I just I was thinking to myself, what what am I doing? <laughs> I've, I've gone out. I've come out here. This guy's like sent me down to McDonald's kiosk, or you know, he's telling me that this horse is going to be embarrassed um, about being gelded. So anyway, he's a numbers man. He said, "Look, I'm a numbers man. You must show me your numbers and present this to the ownership group and explain why gelding the horse is beneficial. Then I'll do it." So okay. So two weeks later, he organised like a private room at the Sheraton Hotel, and all the owners are sitting in this room, and I've just rocked up in my low suit again. I've given it another bell. Mm. Um, and, um, I've, I've got an Excel spreadsheet with 3,000 horses and I actually had to go to the stud book. Uh, we didn't have the internet at that time and, and get all the information, um, collate it all. In my mind, I knew it was a bit of a waste of time to do that, but I just had to have this connection and, and prove something to these people and maybe get, a, get something out of it. So I spent the... Before I, I presented to them, he's introduced to each of the owners and I was already a little bit, um, you know, nervous about the, the, the whole thing and he's like, this is Wasim Gazelle and, you know, he's the managing director of Hot Springs and they run Mambo and they turn over so many million dollars a year and then he's going through each one of these owners and as he's doing it, I'm just getting more and more nervous and thinking I've got this really lousy Excel spreadsheet to present to these guys. I, I just, this, this is not going to end well. But what I didn't realise is that all of those guys wanted to geld the horse. He was the only one that needed to be convinced. Mm. Um, and so he set up this whole thing. So I, I presented to them um, and they decided to geld the horse. Um, he eventually won a couple of races and then um, had an accident and that, but it, it it definitely improved him. But more importantly for me, the people at the meeting, um, they were impressed because young guys come and presented to them and shown a bit of initiative. And one of those people was Sharif Iskander. And mm. that's that's how I met 
um, met him, and and he, he basically changed my life. And so began a wonderful association. Now, Schumann, by your own admission, you had a great knowledge of pedigrees and uh, thoroughbred families, but you lacked knowledge of the racing industry per se. So you started to spend time at the stables of John O'Shea, who was then at Warwick Farm. We're talking late 90s. And by the year 2000, you were John's racing manager. Yes, that's correct. So I met John through Sharif, um, and uh, Sharif had taken me to the races. And John was a, a young trainer. He'd worked uh, for Bart Cummings and Gay Waterhouse and been their foreman. And he'd sort of done the hard yards, and, and he'd set up at Warwick Farm, as you say, in the 90s. And, and then just when he decided to move to Randwick, it was decided that he'd need you know, someone to help out with the office stuff. And, you know, my title was racing manager, but it really was more or less like a secretary. I mean, I just had to, um, you know, do nominations and um, answer phone calls and send out some emails and things like that. Mm. Um, but it was it was important because, yeah, it gave me a connection to a, a trainer. And, and, and John is a very hard taskmaster. Um, you know, he's, he's particularly hard on, um, you know, if you make mistakes and things like that. But he's also very fair. Um, so if you do a good job and that, he's, he's, he's very encouraging. He's very loyal to the people that are close to him. Mm. So for me, um, being a bit of a spoilt um, kid from, you know, that, that, that really hadn't um, had any hardships or anything like that, um, it was a good person to work for from that point of view. And, Look, I didn't last all that long there, um, but the time that I had there was valuable. Mm. But what was more important was that I got a connection with John and his family. Mm. Um, his wife, Isabel, is a lovely um, lady, and she was very kind to me and, and, and helped me when I was working there. And um, you know, But then from that point, I started to attend the sales with John, Jason Abrahams, and, and Byron Rogers. And mm. that's really where I learned about confirmation because I didn't, I couldn't tell anything you know, i had no idea i had no training so mm. i just watched them um and and watched them like a hawk and listened to everything that they said and and just tried to take the best parts of what i could learn from each of them and um and that was really really beneficial for my career mm. Suman, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment sure. on the podcast back sure. with Suman hedge after this the Everest Carnival continues on October the 12th with the Group 1 Spring Champion Stakes and the first ever Silver Eagle. Then to October the 19th for the world's richest race on turf, the $14 million Tab Everest and the Kosciuszko of $1 million. The $1 million Bondi Stakes highlights the Randwick card on October the 26th. Back to Rose Hill Gardens for the race they're all talking about on the 2nd of November the $7.5 million Golden Eagle, supported by the $1 million Redzel Stakes. Then it's out of town on November the 16th for the Hunter, worth $1 million at Newcastle, followed a week later by the Gong, carrying a $1 million purse at Kembla Grange. For punters, for horse lovers, and those with a sense of occasion, this will be an Everest Carnival for the ages. Something happened at the 2002 English Easter broodmare sale destined to change your life. Now, you had a bank of $20,000. Not 21000 20000 was your absolute ceiling. Mm. 
Now, there was a little mare there called Myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H. She was in foal to Testarossa. In fact, uh, this might have been Testarossa's first crop, was it? Yes, it was. Mm. What attracted you to Myrrh? Again, a lot of thought. Good luck, um, John. Um, I, I, I'd bought a share for my parents uh, in a stallion called Honours List who stood at uh, Barami Thoroughbreds originally and eventually went to Whedon. Um, and um, through that, um, my, my father uh, had, had uh, said to me, look, um, you know, you've, you've – You've done some your time now, and and we want to encourage you. So we'll um we'll invest in a mare with you. Um, so whatever you saved and that will will help you out, and we'll 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 buy a mare. So um I didn't again as I really didn't know didn't have enough confidence to go out there and do it myself. So a guy named Paul Higgins who ran Barami Thoroughbreds, he was buying mares for Sharif at the time, and I asked him if he could help to buy a mare and and he um he said okay well i'll just there's a list of them that you can have a look at and then if there's any that you like we can have a, a go at them and then i looked at this mare and um she was a by nasipor who was a, mm. a a good stallion but he, he died prematurely um but more importantly she was out of a mare called sempali girl who was a, a group winner uh, by Western Symphony and and from a great family, um, so Philippa Rush family from New Zealand, and I used to watch all those um, videos of of races back in the eighties and and whatnot, and and knew that there was a lot of ability in that family, mm. and like Testarossa was a you know very sound racehorse. Um, it was going to be his first crop, so I figured a first crop foal by him will be popular. So um, when the bidding was was um, occurring and it looked like she was going to fall short of, um, you know, the 20,000 and, and, and his service fee at the time was 22. I just figured, you know, that's, that seems like reasonably good value. So bought her again, didn't really know much about her physically. As it turned out, she was a very small mare, um, you know, probably 15, 15 hands, uh, 15 one. So, you know, it's quite a small mare, but, Fortunately for me, she she was a very good producer, and she always produced what the sire, the covering sire was, and uh, it looked to end up turning out really well. Mm. I'm going to quicken the pace a little bit here, Suman, because yep, there sure. are many things I want to ask you about. You sold sure. that Testarossa cult out of Murr as a yearling for two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. He was later named Strong Gain. He went to Hong Kong, where he won two races. And then he disappeared, and curiosity got the better of you. Yeah, I um, I'd been following the horse on the Hong Kong Jockey Club website, and um, I noticed uh, after his he, he'd done a bit of racing that he was listed as retired, and I was curious as to what happened to horses there. So I, I rang the Jockey Club, and they actually told me that he was um, he was a really badly behaved horse, and nobody could control him and he'd injured a few workers there and um you know that actually he, he was he, he'd done a a minor tendon injury and he'd been scheduled to be put down mm-hmm. so i was devastated to hear that um so i said to them look i'd like to repatriate this horse um and um then they they said okay well this is what's going to cost and at the time i was working with Kristen buchanan who's uh 
worked with me at Iskander Racing uh, previously and she'd become a trainer. And she she was battling away and getting some winners and that, but she sort of needed a, a good horse. So I rang her and said, look, this horse has done a grade one. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a minor tendon. You'll have to have some time off. But he's relatively lightly raced and he's got a lot of ability. And I think he'd be a nice horse for not a lot of money. So Kristen agreed to um, uh, repatriate the horse and the horse went, went to, to her. Um, and she gave him the time off. And then she brought him back into work and he ended up being her first city winner at Canterbury. I think he won about 100000 for her. Mm-hmm. And he's ended up a, pat, a paddock nanny where he's still a paddock nanny for her, yeah. for young horses. So he's got a great life and there's a bit of karma, I guess, for, uh, behind the story. And um, I'm, I'm grateful because the horse was very good to me. Mm-hmm. And happily, Kristen Buchanan has gone on to better things and has emerged as a very talented trainer. Now, you've mentioned already that you had a service nomination to a stallion called Honours List, who yes. covered Murr, you got a cult, later to be known as Triple Honour. You sold him yes. at an English classic sale for 50000 and Triple Honour became one of Chris Waller's kickstart horses. In fact, was he Chris's first Group 1 winner? Yes, he was, um, and um, it was... It was interesting because the horse, um, he was quite a nice bowl, but then he, he went through a gangly stage as a yearling and he was quite a tall horse uh, as a yearling. And um, he, I, I had to work really hard on Chris to, to try to sell the horse because I'd known Chris uh, prior to the, the sale and, and he'd seen the horse at Witten. Um, but he, he, Chris, to his credit, he really liked the horse and he worked on some owners. At that time, Chris was a battling trainer and it was really hard work for him to get that sort of money together. Um, but he bought the horse and, um, yeah, he, he was just amazing. I mean, he um, went on to, um, you know, win a Doncaster and, and, and be a really high-quality racehorse and mm. was one of the first horses I bred and to breed a Group 1 winner is like what everyone sort of dreams about. So that was, um, yeah, I, I, Amazing for, for, for me. That little broodmare, Murr, was life-changing for Suman Hedge because you later sold her in foal to a horse called God's Own for $400,000 at an English broodmare sale. All of this off an outlay of twenty grand. Yeah, she, she, she was. I mean, um, it was interesting because after the Doncaster, I got a phone call from uh, Byron Rogers, who was working in Inglis at the time, and he said, oh, that's a great result. He goes, um, would you sell the mare? And I said, "Not, yeah, definitely. So we put her in the supplementary part of that sale. Mm-hmm. So Inglis were really terrific in um, accommodating because it was very late, and, and, and they did that. And, um, yeah, then she, she made 400000 and it was a lot of money. And, and for me, I'd never seen that sort of money um, before in my life. Um and it does in, in racing, you need that bit of luck. You know, you need those little things to go your way and to give you a kick along, keep you, you know, ticking along. And, and also it keeps you encouraged, you know, when you, when you get good results. So fortunately too, for the buyers, Kuma bought her and, and she's turned out to be a great broodmare for them too. She decided she had another group one winner, Heroic Valor, and a lot of her progeny sold for really good money. So she's sort of just that mare that did well for everyone. You were working for Iskander Racing at the time a horse called Written Tycoon was racing in Sydney, where he'd won the Todman Stakes at Rosehill Gardens when trained by Graham Begg. He was later transferred 
to John O'Shea. And it was well known at the time, Suman, that he had a wind infirmity. Yeah, so um, John had identified the horse at Ramwick and, and said um, to Sharif, he said, if you ever buy a stallion, you should buy a written tycoon. He said, he's the fastest horse at the track. Mm. And then through a whole bunch of different circumstances, um, the horse became available um, and Sharif bought him. Um, and then he, he, yeah, he'd won the Todman and he'd been, looked a promising horse um, leading into the spring. And then uh, he went in the wind. Um, and which was devastating for the buyers, uh, including us. And um, we got a tie back done on the horse and he had one run in the autumn. We ran second and then he went again. So we had to retire him to stud. Mm. And uh, I remember uh, at the time we were completely lost because we had a son of Iglesia um, who had gone in the wind and hadn't really done it on the track, um, even though we knew he was talented. So he was very difficult to sell. Um, but we were able to find a buyer and um, Eliza, he ended up standing at Eliza Park mm. start, um, at the start of his career. Um, and uh, Service yeah. fee, $5,000. 5000 And uh, we had probably half a dozen stallions that we had interest in, John, and uh, including God's Own and, you know, um, Southern Image and a, a bunch of others. And mm. he, was the he was at the bottom of the rung. <laughs> and very, very difficult sell. So we had to buy a bunch of mares for him to get enough numbers to the horse. Mm. Um, and, and you know, he um, was a horse that uh, uh, very good looking, but he was a bit offset um, and, and with his pedigree and that he wasn't, wasn't easy. So I was often selling nominations to clients and I'd, I'd sell a God's own nom and then I'd say, look, um, we'll give you a written tycoon nom um, for doing it. Mm. And just so that we could get some numbers to the horse, and they'd say, "No, that's all right, no thanks." Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> and they knock us back, and they'd want the God's Own noms. And mm. um, now God's Own, I think he stands in like Tamworth for, for nothing, and Written Tycoon stands for a hundred thousand. Mm. So um, it's it's amazing how it all, all turns around. But he was difficult. Um, even I'd try to put him on stallion tenders, and they'd knock us back for things like that, and. Um, it's just amazing now when I look at him and the way people talk about him and he's a $100,000 horse and it's like everyone acts as if they knew. Um, but I sort of know what the reality is with that horse and how difficult he was to start with and, and where he's come from. So he's done it the hard way and, and you know, I'm, I'm so uh, proud of the horse to see what he's doing now. Suman, we'll bring the curtain down on segment one of our podcast interview in segment sure. two, we'll uh, look more closely at the emergence of Written Tycoon as one of Australia's most com successful commercial stallions. Back with Suman Hedge in segment two shortly. <laughs> <laughs> 